for Your Word again, and we thank You for the Holy Spirit who inscripturated this revelation, has preserved the text over the centuries, and continues to teach us today. We ask that tonight He would continue His program of teaching and edifying and feeding us. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, tonight we're going to continue uh, with uh, the uh, chapter 4 and the fall. And uh, get my pencils out of my pocket here. I want to just review, again, some of the basic principles that we've talked about in connection with Genesis chapter 3 and the event of the fall. Uh, Keep in mind that... In this series, we are touching only the highlights. I mean, it may seem like we're getting into a lot of detail to you, but all I'm trying to do is to provoke some thinking on your part as to the magnificence of Scripture. That when God speaks, He speaks in in many, many different areas. And I hope that maybe I've uh, stimulated some thoughts on you, in you, uh, for thinking about applications of Scripture in areas that you might not have thought about before. In connection with the fall, the event of the fall, uh, remember from last time we pointed out getting it down to the basics. Um, You can do advanced studies from Scripture in every single topic we've covered. So don't think that we've covered anything in an advanced way. This is more of a, of a survey of the basics. But what I've tried to do is boil down the boundary between truth and error. And at this point, uh, when we come to the event, the second great event of Scripture, the fall of, of man and, and the result that that fall has, we deal, obviously, with evil. And the thing that we come back to again and again is that in Christianity, evil has a start and evil has an end. And we want to go back to this again and again uh, next week, or next time we meet, which by the way, we're not going to meet next week because there will be a special conference here at the chapel, so we, we can't meet here next week. So we're going to skip a week. So the notes that you have now that were handed out tonight will take you up, and this, the last page that you got handed is, is incomplete. I tried to finish chapter 4 and I couldn't make it. So, we're going to have another handout after the one that you have. So, the one that you picked up tonight is basically for two weeks from tonight. Uh, but we are going to wind up with the fall, and then we'll move on to Genesis 4, 5, and 6. If you'd like to read in the Scriptures ahead, uh, you can start reading chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, um, chapter 7, and chapter 8. So we'll speed up the, the, the number of chapters in the Bible we're covering. That's the next section we're going to work with. All right. In the fall, these are the two basic fundamental truths that separate biblical truth from error. And the carnal mind, the powers of darkness, and our flesh, and paganism, whatever you want to call the whole kit and caboodle, basically always holds to some form of this impersonal continuum 
where God, man, nature, rocks, and everything else are all part of the same mysterious universe. And that mysterious universe is both good and evil, has always been good and evil, and will always be good and evil. That evil does not start, and evil does not end. This is a fundamental difference, and we want to be very sensitive to this as Christians. It's that only in the Bible is this true. And we surveyed at the beginning, those of you who have the handouts, and uh, we have handouts, don't we, available for people who might have missed? Yeah. Um, if you go back into the pagan literature, as we did in the beginning of chapter 4, you'll see that the pagans do not have an idea of a fall. They, they have something that looks like it. The gods get angry at the noise men make, and so they decide to penalize man or some story like that. But, you, but the gods themselves are evil prior to that. So the gods are evil, man is evil, and there's no redemption from that. And if you'll just look at this diagram again and again, draw it out until it becomes very familiar to you, you'll see there's some powerful after-effects of this. This looks like just innocent theory. Uh, but like uh, we found last time um, with our little discourse on English literature, uh, I th think that you saw just from that discussion last week how it affects literature in a profound way. So we summarized this idea as having two distinct truths. On the biblical side, we say that evil is bounded or bracketed or limited. On the anti-biblical side or on the pagan side, evil is unlimited, unbracketed, and always is there. Think about what this means, by the way, in the future. That your future existence forever and ever and ever, if you want to buy in to paganism, your destiny is always an environment of evil. That's what you've got to look forward to if you want to accept that as your starting point. The second contrasting areas of truth, we said, is that in the fall and in the biblical side, we have responsible guilt. Man is responsible for this. Not God. God made man... In this interval of time, creation was good until evil was found in Satan and until evil was found in man. So the creature bears the responsibility for the origin of evil, not the creator. And that's another fundamental truth. It sounds very theoretical, but as we get into this, you'll see it is very practical. It has some awesome results. On the pagan side, there is no such thing as an ultimate responsibility to an infinite personal God. And so what you always will find in paganism is a drift to the victim theory. And we see that today. It was true in the ancient world. It has not changed today just because we think we're so smart and we talk about genetic codes and this and that. I'm sure you've read your newspapers and you've read stories about we're going to find the gene that does this, we're going to find the gene that does that, we're going to find the gene that does this and so forth and so on, hoping, of course that we can absolve ourselves from personal responsibility and blame it on our genes. It used to be we blamed it on how our mother raised us or something. But we always got to blame it on something else. Of course, it couldn't possibly be our choice. It would have to be always someone else's problem. And this, this is always a tendency. And it's not just people being facetious. It comes out of this. If evil always was there, nobody's responsible for it. And by saying that 
the Bible says that evil originated from the creature, that's the point where the creature is being held responsible. Okay. The next thing we, we, we want to cover and make sure we understand is going back to a point we made in chapter 3 when we gave this diagram on the limitations of human knowledge. And this is just a reminder that when we deal with the problem of evil, there are a lot of unanswered questions here. And so, people draw the conclusion by saying, oh, well, um, I don't see any reason for suffering and sorrow. There's no just reason for this. God is a bad God, so forth and so on. Well, let's go back to a point that we made when we covered that. We drew a little diagram. And we said, here's, here's the way it looks. Here's the Creator. Here's the creature. The question is that if there is no Creator and we just have the universe, the problem is that man doesn't have infinite knowledge. He only has finite knowledge. And if there is to be any purpose to evil or purpose to anything, man has to make it up. Well, and we will see later as we go on to the lesson, in fact, the handout that you have now, just picked up tonight, deals with this issue further. But right now, I just want to review the outlines. And the Christian position is that there is a plan, that it does make sense, but that most of that plan is still in the mind of God and He has not chosen to reveal all of that plan. He has revealed a lot about it. He is tell, telling us about the unseen battle and the principalities and powers that are going on. He tells us about the, uh, the uh, purposes of evil, to glorify himself and so forth. But, of course, you can always ask a question, well, why did he choose to do it that way? And you can always back up the question. And the point is that God, we believe, has an adequate reason and that that reason is not only adequate, but that that reason is also loving. God is not a bad God, and in spite of appearances, there is a reason, and he has that reason. So, those are the fundamental truths. Now, tonight, we start with uh, page 80, 58, and we deal with evil in man. We dealt with the issue of God and evil. Now we come to evil in man. And this is not a very pleasant chapter, particularly if you happen to be a, uh, an optimist about man's capabilities. So, it's, it's rather bleak material tonight. But as I point out, that unless we diagnose properly the problem, we're unlikely to prescribe a solution that's going to work. So, we have a very bleak and dark portrayal of what evil has done in man. And I, I emphasize in the first paragraph there, and I want to emphasize it vocally here, all non-Christian religion, all non-Christian religion tends to trivialize evil. And the result of that trivializing is that they have very weak coping solutions. That's why there's no real call for salvation. Because if you trivialize evil, the problem isn't that bad and doesn't require that radical a solution. And you'll always find this. Wherever you find salvation by works, which is true in every area outside of the biblical position, wherever you find some sort of salvation by works, 
Operation Bootstrap, I'm going to walk up and I'm going to generate all this righteousness. Wherever you find that tendency, behind it is a prior idea. And the idea is that I'm not really that bad to start with. Now, what the Bible does, it portrays such a bad picture of where we are at that it therefore demands a radical redemption. Hence, the cross of Jesus Christ and nothing less. So, the cross of Christ, to which we are obviously moving in biblical history, makes no sense unless you first accept the awful dimensions of the diagnosis. So let's look at the diagnosis. And now on page 58 we start, and what I've tried to do here in this is follow the same outline that you find in chapter 3. So if you've gone through chapter 3 and you know all those topics and subtopics, then all I'm doing here is showing the damage pattern. So we start off with the damage pattern to man's design, because in chapter 3 we covered man's design. Remember we said man is made up of body, man is made up of spirit. Then we dealt with the institutions, the social institutions of man. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go through man, his body, man, his spirit. Then we're going to go through all those divine institutions and we're going to ask the question, what do the scriptures say happened as a result of the fall? All right, let's look at what happens to the body. So let's look at the design of man. Man has body. And man has spirit. And first we want to look at this, the effects of sin on the human body. So let's turn back to uh, Genesis If you compare Genesis 2.17 and Genesis 3.19, Genesis 2.17 being the statement of God, in the day that you eat of thereof, you will surely die. And in verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return. Dust you are, no dust you return. So, the, the, the obvious, the most obvious thing is that you have death. Which implies that if Adam and Eve had not fallen and had not eaten, they would not have died. Which implies what about the original design of the human body? That it was potentially immortal. The same kind of flesh that we have today, these cells and tissues could have lived forever. Now you say, well, that's kind of odd. Well, not really. Think of an amoeba. An amoeba lives forever. He just simply keeps on dividing unless you crush it or something, or poison it. But uh, one-celled animals still have that capability. They just keep on multiplying, 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 and they don't die. Now, what is it about our body uh, that for some mysterious reason, the tissue that otherwise could be taken out of our body and kept alive in a certain environment, biologically, why is it that the tissue, when combined into what we call the body, has a terminus to it? we die. We don't know why. But whatever this process is that is at work at us from the time we took our first breath, this process of aging and dying is abnormal. It is not what man, Adam and Eve were created to deal with. And so the aches and the pains of aging 
are unusual, and they do cause depression. And it is awful to look in the mirror and see what's happening. But the point is that it looks awful, feels awful, because it is awful. And we weren't designed to have bodies like we now have. Okay? Now, the, the thing is that in this, this passage, in Genesis 3, there's something else that happens. You'll notice in verse 19, another thing about the body is mentioned. Sweat. Now, that looks like a little innocent thing. Uh, why, you know, well, of course it was sweat. Well, what about it? Um, there have been some Christian physiologists who have looked carefully at this issue and are convinced that that little signal in the text, that little comment that seems so small, such so a small little observation, is a signal that the metabolism of the human body today is radically different than the metabolism of the body before death began its work that whatever Adam and Eve experienced in their original design has been so radically altered because sweat basically, one of the reasons for apart from fear, uh, fear sweat is it's a thermal thing. It's to cool down metabolism. Well, if you think of an engine that's running hot, what does that tell you about the engine? The engine is running inefficiently. Instead of producing power, that engine's producing heat. And so what this may suggest is that our whole body metabolism was thrown off at this point and a lot of our energy is wasted simply in body heat rather than in actually producing things. So whatever, the observations God gives of that momentous time at the fall tell us that the body uh, is, is nowhere near what it was at one time. And I cite on page 58, Romans 6, 6 and Romans 7, when you get into the details of the Christian life, if you just hold that, uh, hold the place here a moment and just turn there. Uh, these are little phrases in the New Testament that I'm afraid unless we have done what we've done here like tonight, going back and looking very seriously at the physical side of the fall, we kind of dismiss it. We get so spiritual when we read the New Testament, we forget that it's grounded on the Old Testament. And if you look at Romans 6, 6, the little phrase that Paul uses repeatedly there, it becomes almost flippant uh, the way we sometimes think about it. But, but just look at the straightforward words Paul uses in, in Romans 6, 6. The body of sin. He uses in verse 12, sin can reign in our mortal body. Not supposed to. Don't let it reign in your mortal body body, your dying body, the body of sin. See, those are descriptions about the human body, and they're descriptions that follow on top of this foundation in the Genesis narrative. Okay, so the body now has become abnormal. If you look at the quote by Dr. Custance, who, by the way, was a godly Canadian physiologist, uh, wrote a lot in the 70s. Uh, on the bottom page 58, that quote Hiddenly, our living body is as inwardly diseased as a leper's body is outwardly so. And this is because it has been unnaturally mortalized and is in fact already as good as dead. When man dies, he dies an unnatural death, a death which he has been dying all his life. For many, this process is delayed in such a way as to conceal the fact of decay and almost to hold out a promise of immortality. But as soon as the spirit departs, the illusion is destroyed. The disintegration of the body is rapid indeed. And it is doubtful if man finds anything quite as distressing as to look upon a decomposing human body. It is a terribly disturbing sight for man. 
We know this because of what CNN did during Desert Storm when, you remember, the Air Force had trapped the fleeing Iraqi soldiers that were leaving northward out of Kuwait City. Did it very cleverly. The Iraqis were on that route that traveled back to the Basra, where they were going, and the Air Force just simply bombed the lead vehicles in the convoy and it jammed the whole highway up. And then they bombed the ones at the other end, so they bottled them up, and then they just proceeded to bomb the whole convoy from one end to the other. And it was known as the Highway of Death. Well, CNN, of course, had to get in there, and one of the things that they did was they would show the fried flesh of the Iraqis after we napalmed their vehicles. And, of course, this got to be such a trauma to the world that we're looking at, at what these American flyers were doing to these poor Iraqis that had just, by the way, just finished murdering and raping half of the city of Kuwait, um, that this could not go on. And it put tremendous pressure on our president to halt the whole war before the Republican, guard, the, uh, the, uh, Republican guards, the Revolutionary Guards, whatever they were, had been eliminated. Uh, and that was just a case where a few good color pictures of decomposing human bodies stunned the world and caused decisions to be made which perhaps might not have been made had those pictures not come out. Okay, let's go on then to the other part of man, his spirit, and we want to, as we do that, survey the damage to our spirits under the same characteristics that we studied. We said that our human spirit corresponds to God. So as God has sovereignty and God has his holiness, God has his love, and God has his omniscience, our human spirit has choice, it has conscience, it has love, and it has knowledge. And these traits, we said, you remember, are all invisible. They can't be measured. Nobody ever measured an idea. It's not detectable on any kind of Geiger counter. And yet people who say, well, I don't believe in God because he's invisible, he's undetectable. Oh, well, then you must not believe in ideas because they are also undetectable. All of these features here, be it knowledge, be it love, be it conscience, be it choice, are activities, actions, and capabilities of the human spirit. And they're just as invisible as God and just as undetectable as God. But they are these spiritual things that man and man alone has. You may love your dog and your cat, but frankly, they don't have conscience. They do not have knowledge in the sense of man, a sense of a universal. So what we want to do then is survey damage patterns. So let's turn to Romans 3 and look at what happened to man's choice as a result of the fall. Because Paul looks back, dealing with the Roman world of his time, the mission field of his day, and he characterizes the human will. And he says in verse 10, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. A very bleak view of the nature of man. Summarized, we can say that it's almost as though at the fall, the rebellious I will, that Satan had said, I will become like the Most High, I will do this, it is almost like sin has frozen this in place. It's like our choicer has got jammed on the negative side and we, we can't release it. We just have this thing, we want to rebel against all authority, and in particular, we want to rebel against God's authority. And it's inherent now to man. 
You've heard when probably studying evolution, you've heard that er, so Lamarckian version of evolution said you can inherit an acquired characteristic. But have you ever thought that what we're talking about here is an acquired characteristic? Evil is an acquired characteristic that is inherited. At one point in time, it wasn't there. It became there, and we all inherit it from Adam and Eve. So, the choice, that thing that God gave us as creatures to freely obey, has been deeply damaged by sin and evil. And we come to conscience. Conscience is still there. Conscience is still inside. Conscience still does its work, but we have various ways of dealing with our conscience. Moral judgments, in order for the conscience to work, remember the conscience is an analog to God's holiness. God's holiness is the source of moral absolutes. For our conscience to work, it needs to have universals. Now, let's think about what evil does, and we don't have to go very far because we can look at our own heart. What does evil always do to this? If you think about what it does, when you're struggling with a temptation or sin, the temptation is over whether that really is a sin, oftentimes. And we like to excuse it. Well, this isn't. And what we try to do is bottle up the conscience so if this is the universal statement of what's right and what's wrong, we want a little exception right there. And that's wrong, and that's wrong, but there's my little safe zone. I can do my thing, and that's not wrong. But the moment that we do that, we've we've erased the power of a moral absolute. We've made the moral absolute for everybody else except for us. And this is why, since we're in Romans, we turn to Romans chapter 2, this is precisely why Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, he warns against this kind of judging. He says, Therefore you are without excuse, every man who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. In other words, he has to point this out. When we tend to judge someone else, we ignore our own foibles. And this is the problem. This is why in the quote on page 59 from Martin Luther, who, by the way, got it from his um, commentary in Romans, Martin Luther, centuries ago, made this comment. While the righteous make it a point to accuse themselves in thought, word, and deed, that is, we have sensitive consciences, The unrighteous make it a point always to accuse and judge others. This is not to say don't use moral discernment. It's just saying that if the same rule doesn't apply to you, it applies to others, then you no longer have a moral absolute. To be absolute, it has to apply to everybody, including you, me. So what does evil do? We've seen it. It destroys the choice, the volition of man. It destroys or damages it. It destroys and damages the conscience, by walling its authority off. In other words, we want free zones. The conscience is like an authority. And evil brackets that authority. It restricts the conscience. One of the effects. And of course, like I said, once you restrict an absolute, it's no longer absolute. That's why uh, paganism breeds moral relativism. 
Now, down at the bottom of page 59, I picked this quote. I couldn't help but pick this. It's a fam famous quote. Use it a lot. But this shows you what happens once you restrict conscience. And the other side knows this. T.H. Huxley, who was Darwin's spokesman in the 19th century, made this admission. The thief and the murderer follow nature just as much as the philanthropist. Cosmic evolution is incompetent to furnish any better reason why what we call good is preferable to what we call bad than we had before. Clearly saw that once the carnal mind is let loose and absolutes are relativized, starting with our own hearts, there's nothing left after that. It's all gone. Okay, now we come to the quality of love on page 60. And evil has a draining effect on this. Again, love answers to God's attribute of love. In order to work, love is like a glass that fills, that's filled up and spills over. Well, it can't spill over until it's full. Now, the problem with love is that in order to be free to love, I first have to be secure. Now, all our lives we've been taught to think that the opposite of love is hatred. But isn't it striking that the, gospel, uh, the epistle of John, when John deals with love, he says the opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is something else, unforecast. It's kind of unanticipated. He says the opposite of love is fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Now, why do you suppose that instead of love, hatred, this is why you always, when you read the text of Scripture, you want to watch out for your own, getting trapped on your own habits. Because the opposite of love, if you read scripture, is fear. Now, what does that mean? Well, if I fear, if you fear, security is on your mind. Your security. Self-security. As long as self-security is on your mind and uppermost, you aren't really free to love someone because in loving someone else, you're vulnerable. And now, all of a sudden, if you're not secure in yourself, you're going to have a hard time loving someone else. The presupposition, in other words, of an act of love is an act of security, an act of sense of security. And so, where you find gen whole generations and cultures that tend to be heartless and don't demonstrate a love, you find a whole generation of fearful people, busy and scurrying about trying to secure their own security. And after we get secured, then we'll be free to love. But evil makes everyone insecure because the conscience being violated knows that it has to answer to him. And if I have a problem with him and I have to answer to him, that really doesn't make me too secure at the most basic level of my life. If I have peace with God at that fundamental level in my soul, then I have a platform in which I can start loving. But if I don't have that security, I've I got a problem, and that's got to be settled first. And that's why we have the gospel. You can't get the fruit of the gospel until you believe it, until that basic issue is settled. So sin has basically eroded and destroyed that, that quality of love. Now, the last one is, is knowledge, and we've said that knowledge is limited. But sin twists the knowledge. Knowledge now becomes a tool to reconstruct 
my perception of the world to make it fit what I want it to be. Knowledge has been deeply perverted by sin. And this is why, as we've gone on in church history, it's become more and more evident because of the kind of heresies we've, we've faced that sin has really done a number on how we know. It used to be thought in the early centuries of the Christian church that sin had done a number on our morals, sin had done a number on our behavior, sin had done a number on various other things. But there were still men like Thomas Aquinas, great theologian, who basically held that we fell from the neck down. That not our man's reason wasn't hurt in the fall. Why, man's reasons, he still can add two and two and get four, just like any non-Christian. Surely the power of reason is free of any sin damage. And that leads to rationalism. And yet we found that reason itself gets trapped by its own presuppositions. And the presuppositions are set by a sinful heart. The program has been programmed wrong. So we now, far better, I think, than five, six hundred years ago in church history, really acknowledge the seriousness of sin and its effect on knowledge. And that's the basis of some time when we get into the, some of the appendices on evolution, the age of the universe. I'll show you, when you get into the math and the physics, it's hard for a modern man to believe this, but the math and the physics have been damaged by sin. And you say, how can a, an equation be damaged by sin? Simple. A mathematical equation is nothing more than a sentence like the English language. That's all it is. A mathematical, no matter how simple or how profound it is, just for the heck of it, I'll try to bring in the big long equation that describes the growth of a raindrop. And you see how many terms are in this thing. In fact, it's so big that we still really haven't solved it. Last time I saw somebody trying to solve this thing on a chrome, it came out to take 22 hours to make a, raindrop, a water drop big enough to fall. Well, in a thunderstorm, it happens in about 15 minutes. So obviously, God's solving the equation. Somehow, we don't really know how he's doing that. But this equation has a lot of terms in it. But what we're saying is that it's describing a picture. The math is but a symbolic picture of a concept. And it's the concept up here that has been sinfully perverted. So man has been deeply damaged in his design. All areas of his spirit, as well as his body, have now been touched by this damage pattern. All right, let's go now to the other effects of sin on man. And these are these divine institutions. These are the social structure of man. And we said that the first social structure that we have of man, on page 60, responsible dominion. That is, that Adam was given a calling. He was told to subdue the earth for God. That's responsible dominion. He was told to begin to till that ground. And as his family grew and as he had, was to have sons and daughters, they were to take those skills and spread paradise across the face of the earth. They were to spread Eden and bring it into subduing. The earth was good as God created it, but the man was there to cultivate it. Why do you cultivate ground? To grow fruit. He was to be the dresser of the earth. That was the plan originally from Eden. So, the first institution was man was to be a lord with a little l. The lord over the earth. Well, what happens in sin? 
sin affects this institution in a lot of ways, and we won't be done mentioning them by a long shot tonight. But I just point out two areas where this happens. That first paragraph under that topic on page 60 on the bottom, one aspect is quantitative. Production from the rebellious ground costs more. It is radically less efficient, yielding instead of easy harvests of sweet fruit the unintended thorns and thistles after hours of sweat. Not only is the ground out of control, but man's social behavior is out of control. Unrestrained perverted addictions thwart every attempt to control them. So, quantitatively, we have a massive inefficiency. You'll see that this is a blessing, by the way, in the handout for tonight. There's an inefficiency to production. It's inherent. It is as much a part of labor and work today as death is in our bodies. Their human productivity is wounded in an economically catastrophic way. Put it said another way. What was the most costly business decision that was ever made in the history of man? The fall. The economics of the fall alone amount to trillions of dollars in wasted energy, in inefficient production, because we chose to do it our way. Now, the other way in which we can see dominion is it's qualitative, down at the bottom of page 60. So, not only is it quantitative, the amount and inefficiencies, but the value of what we produce is affected. Not only is the value or price of what we produce affected, but the way we value what we produce, the valuating system is wrong. How you price a good. When anybody prices a service or a good, they are imputing value to it. Let's just pause for a moment here because this is basic biblical economics. You know, the Bible touches biology, geology, science, physics, sociology, psychology, and it even touches economics and business. But the act of pricing is something that grows not out of the object, it grows out of the beholder of the object. For example, gold is often looked upon as a standard of value. Well, not really. If you're on a desert island and you're starving to death, and I offer you a loaf of bread for all your gold, what are you going to do? Eat your gold? No, you're going to eat my bread. So my bread has become more valuable and has a higher price on it than all your gold bullion. Why is that? Because at that moment, you've got to eat. Well, has the gold changed its value? Well, it's because you've changed your crediting of that value. Now, why am I bothering with all this economics? I'll tell you why. Have you ever heard the word impute used in the Bible before? And it's used of Jesus Christ's righteousness imputed to us. If you look that up in a concordance, the word impute, in the Greek and the Hebrew, you'll see that those were economic terms that were used in the marketplace for pricing goods and services. And when the Bible uses the word impute, righteousness, to our account, that's literally saying God puts a price tag on us. It's a statement of an economic transaction that he does. And it's an interesting example of the fact that economic value comes from a personal creature. It doesn't come from a system. It doesn't come from an innate object. It comes from a value-evaluating 
creature. God makes value judgments. We make value judgments. And we said that God makes value judgments and His value judgments are what count. He has the absolute and final say. When God says, that work of yours is worth this much, that's the final value. The problem is, other people, including yourself and others, we don't know what the ultimate value of that is, so the marketplace prices it under different prices. And these are relative valuations. So, the market isn't only an approximation. If you have a lot of sinful people and they want to buy pornographic literature and pay a lot of money for it versus the Bible, and the Bible's going for cheap, does that mean that the Bible is less valuable than the pornographic literature? No. Because God places the value on it and absolutely values it. What it's saying is that the market is distorted. That the pricing schemes are controlled by the flesh. And the pricing schemes are wrong and you have an economic perversion going on. And isn't it strange that this sort of thing is never taught in economics class? You can take one economics course after another, it's never mentioned about God and the role in economics and the pricing game. But that's what the Bible gives us. It gives a tremendous basis for almost everything we do. So what we're saying here, summarized, on the first divine institution has become inefficient and it has become of perverted value. And not only has it become a perverted value, we even have a problem in evaluating it. We have a problem evaluating our own works as well as the works of others. The second area is the area of marriage. And of course, we could go on in scripture after scripture, but I will take, stop and go to Genesis chapter 3. If you'll turn there a moment. And all kinds of other bizarre arrangements. Now, why is this happening? Because man has said that the damage, although he won't phrase it this way, the damage to marriage has made marriage a less than desirable institution. It's a failure. And that makes sense if you say that if husbands and wives have been arguing forever, as long as it's been marriage, then it is a useless institution. But go back to the diagram that we started with tonight, where we said, what was that fundamental axiom? That in the Christian position, there was a period when things were good and not, it was not true that there was any sin in here. During that period, there was a marriage. After all, God married Adam and Eve. Didn't have any marital conflicts. It's possible not to. Men weren't created to have that. Marriage, by the way, notice, precedes the fall. And so in that period, there wasn't any. In this period, there is. Well, big news. That doesn't invalidate the institution. It just says the institution's been damaged. But the institution itself is not a mere convention. It's part of the structure of how God made man. But one of the interesting things in the Genesis text, if you look at it, in Genesis 3.16, the last two clauses of that verse, if you'll hold the place and at the same time you're looking there, flip the page and turn to chapter 4. And look at the last clause in verse 7 of chapter 4. In the last part of chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, translators have 
by the way they channel that connective there, that and, they could also translate it but. But if they translate the conjunction as a but, then it makes the first part of that sentence conflict with the second part of the sentence. And of course, there have been some who said, well, that means that the wife's desire to be the husband. Well, where were the desire before? I mean, that, this is part of a penalty text now. This is not a blessing text. So, the desire for the husband must be somehow perverted, somehow abnormal. And that conjunction, but he will rule over you, that sounds a little harsh. That wasn't in there back in Genesis 1. So, we interpret then that however we look at that phrase in verse 16, it is in a cursing text, not a blessing text. So we have to interpret it in that context. Well, thankfully, the exact Hebrew construction occurs only a chapter later, and that's why if you turn to chapter 4, verse 7, I'll show you exactly where it occurs. That last two clauses of verse 7 of chapter 4, its desire is for you, but you must master it, though it's translated differently, at least in my translation, and may be in yours. In the Hebrew, it's exactly the same. Now, if you look in chapter 4, verse 7, it's quite clear in that verse what it means. If you do well, talking to Cain, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, it's quite straightforward, isn't it, in that section. The idea there is that man wrestles with his flesh, with his sin nature that wants to dominate him, but he must rule over it. All right, if we take that text and we move it back to chapter 3 and interpret chapter 3 in the light of it, that's the source of the war of the sexes. And translated in modern terms, there's the gender war going right on right there. The desire will be for your husband to control him. And the man, he will try to control you. It's a control thing. Look elsewhere, too, in that cursing passage or the, the, the discipline passage. If you look at verse, the rest of verse 16 upward, notice how the woman is hurt in the fall. Then, while you're looking at verse 16, go down and look at verse 17, 18, and 19, and look at how the man is hurt by the fall. Do you notice a gender difference? The pattern of damage is different for the woman than it is for the man. And it's quite clear that it's gender-specific damage. And women are not affected by sin in the same way as men, and men are not affected by sin in the same way as women. We are affected differently. And we are affected differently because God made us different. And as a result of that, when the damage came, it came differently. Man, in other words, to sum this up in the Second Divine Institution damage, is the woman's primary pain and sorrow comes from problems in the home. Man's primarily problems, in verses 6, 17, 18, 19, come from going out in that field and trying to make a living. Now you think about it. Isn't that pretty valid? Think about your lives. Think about your homes. And think about your parents. Isn't that pretty true? That the, there's a gender difference going on here. And God's Word has it all centuries and centuries ago in this working out of the damage. Finally, then, we come to the third divine institution, the family. And that, too, has been damaged. And like marriage, 
we've tried to redefine the family. The family is now looked upon as an obsolete entity, as some sort of a social convention, arbitrarily picked by civilization, and maybe now we can redesign it or re-engineer it. Well, the Bible says the problem isn't in the design, the problem is in the sin damage to the design. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, sad, but where was the first murder? On the street with some hoodlum that didn't know his victim? Isn't it sad that the first murder is in families? Hatred for the siblings. Brother literally against brother. So sin rears its ugly head in the home, in the family. Oh, it does so on the streets too. But where does it do it first? It does it in the home. Sin is everywhere. The damage is devastating in every aspect. And of course, if you look at uh, that passage there, I've given you plenty of verses to uh, skim. All of this is very summary tonight but I've tried to give you verses that point at least to some of the basic areas where sin has done its vast damage. Okay, now if you look at the last paragraph of the text on page 61, I say this, when faced with a corruption in each of these social structures, fallen man responds in several ways. One way is to reinterpret the struggles. That goes on right today in the front page of the paper in Time magazine. It's to reinterpret the struggles with sin in terms of economics. It's going on in Latin America. The Marxists and the Catholic Church have made us, uh, not all the Catholic Church, but parts of the Catholic Church, particularly the Jesuits, and Marxist liberation theology has gone into Latin America and turned those societies upside down with revolutionary acts because they have submitted to the concept that it is not fundamentally a sin problem, it is fundamentally an economics problem. Now let's just stop there for a moment. Let's look at ideas and not just buy into anything that comes out in the newsprint or the six o'clock news and think about it for a minute. If it's really true that economics is the problem, what have we just said biblically about economics? What's economics to deal with? It deals with values. In particular, it deals with how I evaluate something. But we've already said how I value something is controlled by my sin. Sin controls my valuation judgments. So, you don't escape the problem by just simply pointing to economics. Because sin is behind the economics, biblically. But Karl Marx, of course, didn't believe that. And Marx has taught the doctrine of class warfare. He has set class against class in every continent of this planet. The haves and the have-nots. And the owners of production versus the workers of production. And the latest and silliest example of this is when two major U.S. corporations who are trying to work with the employees and the managers in teams were sued because they were told that the Management and the workers cannot fraternize in meetings. Here they are trying to team together to resolve the difference and they get penalized for trying to resolve the difference. Why? Because there has to be a class difference. Manager's not a laborer. Laborer's not a manager. We've got to keep the classes here. What is this? It's Marxism. 
same idea, is that the fundamental struggle is economic. It is not economic scripturally. It is sin. That's the struggle. Another example, as I point out, the race, making it a racial structure. And both black and white and oriental do this. Every race does it. Come on. In Europe, the whites and the whites can't get together. In Africa, the blacks and the blacks can't get together. And the whites and the blacks can't get together. And the orientals can't get together with the whites. And this goes on and on. It's all Noah's children here. Wait a minute. What's going on? There's no such thing as superior race. We all have the genes of Noah. All came off the same boat. So what's this class business? It's not race. It's sin. Sin has eaten away in every area. But we don't want to call it sin because that doesn't sound contemporary. And worst of all, if I call it sin, I bring up that boogeyman, personal responsibility. And I mustn't do that. I must make everyone a victim, especially myself. I always must make myself a victim. Never accept personal responsibility. And if I can say it's my economic background or it's my racial background, I can avoid responsibility that way. I can pass it on as something else. Blame someone else. Blame shit. And then finally, we have, in the 20th century particularly, through Sigmund Freud and others, it's a psychological problem we have. Oh, Hobart Maurer was a psychologist in one of the states, I think it was an Ohio state. And he made a profound discovery. He went around the psychiatric ward and he would walk up to patients that had, were diagnosed as catastonic schizophrenic. Really out of it, people. And he'd, he'd walk up to them and he'd put his finger right in their face and he says, I can get you out of here in three weeks if you just admit what the problem is. And I know your problem because he'd do have a patient history. And this clown had ripped off the government and he was embarrassed about his tax problem. And, the ta and it just one of these things capitulated and kept escalating. He tried to solve that one by embezzling money and then the money got stolen. And it was a whole big knot knotted ball of wax. And the way you get out of this is, is you freak out. And it's not just pretended. I mean, you can actually freak out this way. But what old Hobart Maurer wasn't even a Christian found out was... Lo and behold, when these people started acknowledging personal responsibility, guess what happened? They stopped acting so crazy. The catastonic schizophrenia, not due to chemical, I mean, there's bona fide, bona fide medical problems that, can be, that have to be dealt with chemical. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, oh, Hobart Maurer and people like him have done very careful research and found out much of what we call mental illness is simply due to escapisms around personal responsibility. And one of the interesting statistics in the 20th century, quite embarrassing, is the fact if you take a control group of people who have mental problems and you take the other people who go for treatment, guess which one resolves their problems faster? No difference. Well, what does that tell you? Something's going wrong here. I mean, we pour in hundreds and thousands of dollars in therapy over here and zero over here and we don't get any statistical difference? Tells me it's wasted therapy. Or it's mistargeted. And that's the whole point. We misread the results of sin. And those are three classic 20th century responses that have gone on more than 20th century. But you remember those three classes. Marx and his economic class warfare, the racists, and the psychology people. 
and those will always try to pick on all these institutions, point out what's wrong with them, and try to blame this as we are passive, unresponsible victims of something else. And as Christians, I'm sorry we can't agree to that. Okay, we're going to finish tonight by looking down at exercise 4.2. Those are some exercises that sort of summarize, I'll just quickly, quickly note them, uh, the basics of dealing with the origin of evil. Because next time we're going to get into the problem of evil in nature and, and beyond that we're going to get into coping strategies with sorrow and suffering. And when we get into the coping strategies of how to deal with evil in everyday life, it all is going to be presupposed on this basis. So that's why I just want to review just one minute here. State in your own words how the Bible does not deny that there is a just and sufficient reason for the presence of evil in history. And you should struggle with that reading Job, reading Romans 9, and you realize from the revelation of, of that, that, that God claims there is a reason, but very interestingly, He demands that we bow our knee to Him. He demands that we acknowledge Him as our Creator. And He doesn't really get into too many details. Because remember in the book of Job, we have the introduction. We, have, we can peer behind the screen and see, oh gee, there was Satan, there was there were the debate between the evil angels and the good angels and they affected Job and God told him to do this. And we got a lot more perspective on a poor Job than Job had. But Job was satisfied. When Job met God face to face, the questions went away because he was sure now that there was God, this kind of God that I just met face to face. He has a plan and I trust him. And that's hard to do. But that's what we have to do. We have to trust him that he has a good plan. And we can say in question two, state in your own words how there can be a just and efficient reason for evil without man knowing it. You ought to know that very easily because man's knowledge is finite. And just because he can't know it doesn't mean it isn't there. Three, list evidence in biblical history that God is not aloof from man's suffering under evil. When God allowed evil into the universe, it touched him and it destroyed his son. God is at one with us in the sense that he got injured by sin too. So however, whatever went through his mind when he chose to create, it wasn't callousness. It wasn't a sense, well, I'm going to wipe these people out while I'm up here safe. No, no. The incarnation made him vulnerable. See, this is where the gospel and the cross and everything else is tied in. You see the structure of Scripture? It's one piece of Scripture is allied to another piece of Scripture, which is fixed to another piece of Scripture. The whole thing stands or falls together. And then I suggest, the last one, get a copy of Genesis 3, 14 through 19 text. And like we did tonight, we suggested some gender-specific stuff. The Holy Spirit may bring other things to your mind. And take that and copy it on a copy machine and you can, you can make all kinds of notes in it and not wreck your Bible and use it as a study text. Basic text. We'll go back to that again and again as we, as we deal with this issue of, of suffering. So next week, or not next week, two weeks from now, we will deal with the issue of nature, what happened out there in the physical world around us, and then we'll deal with, well, so what? What do we do practically and day by day dealing with suffering? Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your salvation that you have provided us in the person of Jesus Christ. That you, from your standpoint of evaluation, 
see all our works and they don't measure up. And that which does measure up is the work of your Son. And we thank you that you offer your righteousness in him to us by faith. And we thank you tonight in his name. Amen. Um, in the lesson, we, we basically um, surveyed half of creation, man, and then next week we'll deal with the other half, nature. And um, we want to do that preparatory to um, dealing with the issue of suffering and personal suffering. Uh, it does no good, I found out, after numerous attempts, um, to talk about personal suffering and sorrows and how do you respond to those if these background things aren't dealt with. So that's why I wanted to do that that way. So if there are any questions, we'll toss it up. But I, we won't spend too much time tonight. I'm going to deal with suffering on the notes that I just handed out tonight for two weeks from now. But that you're right. And one of the things that you see in the scriptures um, is that the Bible is quite realistic. And the emphasis is really on what you think. And Carol and I have been kind of batting this around ever since we went through that Job passage. And, and God sounds so ferocious and, and uncompassionate to Job. When he, when he confronts him, almost ridiculing him. And, but, but then, if you stop and look at what God is saying to Job, it's all questions. Now, if you think about it, why do you ask questions? Well, if a person is emotionally upset, uh, angry, or uh, just depressed, or hurting, um, what happens when you ask him a question? Well, you get the mind working. And I think it's very interesting that you see this pattern even at the cross. It's interesting. The, when, when the soldiers went to offer Jesus while he's dying for our sins, the, um, um, basically a drug, uh, that was done universally in Roman crucifixions to at least act as an anesthetic. And you remember Jesus refused it. And uh, it's, it's in interesting that in the course of bearing our sin and going through that tremendous time of suffering, Jesus insisted on the full use of his mind. That he had to cope. You don't believe with your emotions. You believe, and it's not just your mind, I grant you that, it's the spirit through the mind. But nevertheless, it is the spirit through the mind. And the mind has to function. It can't just sit in a passive, catatonic state and expect to cope with suffering. It won't work that way. When you pray, you pray with your mind. Yes, it is the Spirit. And yes, the Spirit works because ultimately the mind is a function of the Spirit. But, and we're not trying to knock the fact that, you know, we're not talking about just bare intellect here. We're talk, talking about the fact that language, talking, uh, is a mental thing. And when God speaks, he expects us to respond in language and carry on a conversation, even when we're in pain. And Job is a good example of that. I mean, he, the man had economic disaster, his family part, he had disease, he had boils. Uh, in every area of his life, he was touched with sorrow and heartache. And in the middle of all that horror, 
God comes in and says, let's have a theological discussion. And it just sounds so, at first glance, irrelevant to this guy. And then you have to ask yourself, well, if I'm reading the text and, it, and I get this impression that it's irrelevant, uh, probably it's me that's irrelevant. I, I'm misreading this text somehow. Lord, show my eyes, open my eyes. To let me come here. You're not that kind of a God to be irrelevant. And you're not playing games with a guy. Show me why you're doing what you're doing. And you go to Romans 9, which I also cite in the notes that I guess I passed out or will pass out. Um, here Paul is in deep grief over the fact that he knows Jews are going to hell. Romans 9.1. I, he just wished he could go to hell in place of his fellow Jewish brethren. And he's obviously in deep grief. And yet, not ten verses go by in that chapter, and what do you see? He's quoting the verse says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will damn who I will damn. Well, how does that resolve the sorrow and the grief of the first verse? It does. Because at the end of all that passage, he says, Oh, the depth and the riches of him from whom, to whom, and through whom are all things. Paul has resolved his suffering and his sorrow and his grief. But it wasn't without this, this very tough, strong meeting with God. Uh, so that's, an, I think, a, a good illustration, several good illustrations. Yes, Debbie. And that basically what Debbie just said is, is, uh, is my conclusion from the... You, you study every one of these suffering texts. Because after all, we don't want to create our own little policies here. We want to be, as faithful Christians, faithful to the text. And if you go to the texts that deal with suffering, you come out with exactly that. What basically God seems to want us to do is go back to the basics and look at Him. And particularly is that necessary when we're in grief. Because when you're suffering, you're basically in shock. And shock of some degree, and your emotions are, are running 110 <clears throat> percent. And what you don't want, what we crave, a pat on the back and nice, pleasant words. But and, and it's not that God doesn't want to give those to us, but it's so much more important that we see who He is. And I think in that Job thing, God cuts right through the smog. Job has, it's, it's like the surgeon's scalpel. Gosh, it, cut, it hurts to cut. But he goes for it and gets, gets to the issue. And that's the way God seems to do it in these situations. He gets our attention. Look at me. Look who you are. Now, let's just get that straight. And I'm not going to pat you on the back and say, poor little boy. 
and go into a self-pity routine. I, you face me and you deal with me. And I'll show you two texts when I get into that, that thing that in Psalm 74 where in one of Asaph's psalms. And when Asaph comes to grips with his sorrow, his, in his case it's a political historical thing, he's watched the collapse of the temple, he's watched the enemies of Israel come in and absolutely commit sacrilege and destroy everything he holds dear. And he prays the most unbelievable prayer in Psalm 74. And uh, I first came across it. I had read it before in English, and I, you know, somehow, uh, for me, when I'm forced to read it in another language, because I have to struggle with the language, because I'm not a language student, uh, when I have to struggle coming at the text with another language, it makes you more observant. Because when you're reading your mother tongue, you tend to read it quick. Um, I have a son that's learning Spanish, and he was saying how he likes to read the Bible in Spanish, not only to learn his Spanish, but to learn the Bible better. Because then all of a sudden he gets hit with a word, and oops, wait a minute, I never saw that there before. So when I learned it, when I did it in Hebrew, I was just shocked at how blunt this prayer was. And we'll go into that, because it's not only God being quite blunt to Job, but in these cases, the, the Old Testament saints were quite blunt equally back. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't this nice, oh, sweet little words to God. These guys were hurting, and they wanted answers, and they were saying, let's do it. What's going on here? And I'm sure that if Asaph got up here in the middle of a prayer meeting uh, and prayed what he prayed in Psalm 74, I mean, there'd be more than two or three people out here wondering about his spirituality. And yet, it's in the text. It's in the text, yeah. very interesting question here um, and that is that, that and that's the mystery and that's one of the difficult things of course a lot of Christians disagree on where Satan fell did he fall you know uh, after creation in Genesis 1-1 at 2 somewhere just prior to that garden sequence or did in fact he fall in Genesis 1-2 and, and there's been a debate in the church about that I've, I've kind of downplayed that in this class because we're just dealing with just simple basic stuff and the what we're trying to just get through is it, the creatures re, rebel, not exactly the se sequence. But as far as Satan being um, cursed, he obviously has been judged in some sense. But the sentence of execution upon him has not been fully exercised because you see him appearing in heaven. In Job passage, he's there. I mean, God calls a meeting of the spirits of all the world. And he's there. And God carries on a conversation with him. And then the book of Revelation, you read about how he casts them down. So it's almost, it's almost a case where the sentence is kind of passed, but hasn't been executed. And that in turn, that little, that little thing that you all are de dealing with about Satan and the judgment, that in church history has been a matter of lively debate as to the possible explanation for human history. Augustine raised this question. He raised the issue that 
Is it possible that when Satan fell and he took angels with him, that the believers that have come on into the scene of history, in humans, in human form, are in somehow replace those angels that fell with Satan. I mean, is this some sort of thing going on? The reason why theologians kind of play with that, nobody's come to dogmatic conclusions, not a matter of a creed, but it's been a source of interesting Christian speculation because these strange things you get. For example, you read in 1 Corinthians, uh, would you do thus and such please in your communion service because the angels are watching? Well, why do we worry about what the angels are watching in our communion service? Well, they are. And apparently, we're supposed to be doing things that they're watching, and, and, and we have to consider them. And here they are, invisible. We can't talk to them. Uh, they don't talk to us, and yet they're apparently watching us all the time. In Ephesians, they're sit, they're, Paul makes the definite statement that they sit here and they're watching us. Now, whether that refers both to Satan and you know, the good angels and the bad guys, I don't know. But that's a whole other dimension. And what... It's not that we should worry about it, but Satan is definitely under God's sovereign control because in the very Job passage, what does Satan have to do to get to Job? He has to get permission. So, he doesn't go anywhere unless God first gives him permission to do something. And then, of course, you get into the evil question. Well, then why does God let this guy loose? Why don't he tighten up the leash a little bit? And we don't know. We just trust him that he's doing it. We seem to know, and the neat thing is if you play chess, and I'm not a big chess player, but if you play chess, you know, the chess masters are masters at making, letting you move first, and then they've got it all planned, six plays, eight plays down the range, how they're going to ace you <laughs> and take your men out. And if you can think of a master chess player, that's how God seems to rule. He doesn't come in and knock all the pieces off the board. He says, come get me. And then all of a sudden, Satan advances his piece and point, point. Uh, and, and that's explained in, in Corinthians where Paul says, if the rulers of this world had known the deal about the cross, they'd never crucified Christ. Because in, in, Satan thought that was his glorious moment. Now I've got him. And precisely that was the moment that Satan lost it. So he's a genius. He's a stunning genius. And a stunning fool. And this is why he's furious. And why Peter says he is our enemy around like a roaring lion. Because somehow we are identified um, as the cause of his downfall. We are, kind of, we are identified with Christ that way, so he hates us very much. So all of that's into the suffering, and we're going to get into that a little bit when this doctrine of suffering. I dare not get into it a lot, because I don't have that space, and I don't mean to get into these details, but... As to when Satan fell, um, I personally am thinking more and more that he fell um, not in Genesis 1-2. I think he, my personal belief is that I think he fell between Genesis, um, the end of Genesis 2 and before Genesis 3. And that's when he did it, but whatever. Uh, the issue there is that God did sentence him because he's executing the sentence. Um, I'll ask you a question. Evil? Yeah. It's not created. Right? No, it's not created. So it just kind of... Uh, it's a... It's there when you give choice to people? 
Well, we have to be careful there, uh, Marcia, because in that notes where I deal with that problem of evil and God, I, may, I, I carefully note, there's a, you'll see a paragraph where I struggle with that, where I try to state, it theoretically is possible for God to have created creatures with genuine free will who never sinned. Jesus being one of them in his humanity. Uh, Two-thirds of the angels being a lot more. Uh, so it's possible to God, for God to have created creatures that would have chosen. The question is, well, why did he choose creatures that he knew very well would not choose, would rebel against him? And that's the question that the unbeliever likes to say, ha ha, you Christians, you know, your God is a bad God. And we have to respond by saying, uh, after we politely inform them, that they haven't got any answer at all. So before they knock ours, they better come up with at least one. Um, that the issue there is that that we trust him on the basis of what we know of his character, and we leave it there for now. But where, what evil is? That's another sixty-four thousand dollar question, and theologians have struggled with that. Um, but it's um, you know it's something you can chew on for years. But we just know if we keep with the text of Scripture, just keep with the text of what God has told us, sin has power. That's why we struggle with it. That's why the only power victorious over it is Christ and the Holy Spirit, the exchange life that we have next conference. Um, and we have to have that appreciation for its power and never to take sin, sin as some sort of a easy-to-triumph-over thing. It isn't. And when, when you deal, you want to see what sin looks like in a grip, you think, of a, think of the worst kind of addict you could ever think of on drugs or, or alcohol or whatever. Just think of the, the, the destruction that goes on and the person struggling to deal with that. That's an eloquent, eloquent. An addiction is an eloquent physical manifestation of what sin is like in principle everywhere. It's just that we don't see it everywhere because... We're, we're experts at covering it up. Um, but that's what it is, and it's a very potent thing. Excuse me, you had a question. Yeah, um, I have a question about the point at which man became mortal. You said that after the fall, that mortality, our mortality is a result of the fall. Yeah, okay, question about the, when man became mortal. It's a choice of adjectives, and I guess maybe what I should say is that the body that was created, Adam and Eve had, that we, the flesh, and I contrast that with resurrection bodies. So the natural body is versus the resurrection body. That body had no death in it. So that we could, how you want to label it, you could say it was potentially mortal or potentially immortal or something. But it was, it was liable to death. And in the case, the resurrection body isn't. The resurrection body is, 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 a, is, in one sense, a horrifying thing because once people are allied to the resurrection body, there's no more choice. The days of repentance are gone. This is why there's a resurrection to damnation as well as a resurrection to eternal life. Uh, the, the probation and the chance for salvation, that's it. From now on. Because the, the resurrection body apparently can never be separated from the spirit. Well, this body, thankfully, is separable. And thank goodness, when it was destroyed... Uh, we can escape from it. And whatever you want to call that, mortal or immortal, it's just that Paul uses the word mortal to talk about the natural body as a fallen one. I was thinking about the tree 
the tree of life. That's right. That's right. And that's been a theological point uh, that you've raised. Uh, that is another little one of these conundrums that you can play with forever. Uh, what would have happened had Adam and Eve eaten the tree of life before they ate the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Well, and many theologians have said that was been the end of the probationary period. They would have they would have won. They would have passed the test, and uh, they would have gone on to resurrection bodies. But the temptation was there. But before you do that, let's go try this one because now we got knowledge of good and evil. And whatever it was, they could have gone to it after they fell, and they had to be physically restrained from doing it. And that's one of the points that when we get into the origin of civil government and capital punishment, when we get into the Noahic Covenant and how that happened in history, when, when govern, what we call civil government started, didn't start with the fall, started much later. And um, it's interesting, the first time in your concordance you look up the word sword, the first sign of capital punishment is the angelic guards around the tree of, the, of life. And their orders were apparently to kill anybody that came near it. The marketplace, the free market, uh, again, we could go into biblical economics, and I'm not an e economics person, it's just that I've, I've read some of these areas out of curiosity. But just to quickly sum up the question period, because I know some of you have to go. Um, in economics, uh, it's always been a battle between the totalitarians who want to decree prices, a price structure, a just price, and the free market advocates. And the scripture ha comes down the side of the free market people. And the reason is not because the free market is sinless. It's rather because there's less chance of gross mispricing in a free market because you have competing people b bidding on these objects. This is why the stock market, the commodities market, are really economic engines that keep society functioning because they're pricing structures. If you didn't have a market to price where human beings come through and they decide, I want this for 550 and this is $4 and that's $25. If we did not have that, then it would, the prices would be set. And, and this is why the Soviet Union collapsed. Those poor Russians, we had, remember Katrina here, the Christian girl from Germany, and she was in the... And I sat back there one Sunday after the service and she, she'd come from Germany and, and she, her dad owns a business in West Germany. And I said, Karina, what... What does your dad think about East Germany? Um, you know, the, they had a problem when East Germany uh, opened up to West Germany. I mean, it was a basket case. 